2 Chronicles 20. Last week, we looked at a message on what to do when you feel like quitting. And I thought some of these just come up with different questions. I sometimes just right from my couch there in the office. And when someone asks a question, and so I thought, well, let's just see what the Bible has to say and answer them in a, in a little bit more descriptive form. So what to do when you feel like quitting. So I thought I'd go to the next one tonight. And um, this is out of 2 Chronicles 20. Now, we have been in 2 Chronicles 20 on a number of occasions. I think the first time was during COVID. Uh, and then it's been another time since then. But uh, I assure you, the outline is not the same. I don't even remember what those other outlines were. But we're looking at a different emphasis. And tonight, I want us to look at this. And let's just stand and let's read the first three verses and we're going to go down through verse 22 through the message, but 2 Chronicles 20, beginning in verse number 1. It came to pass, after this also, that the children of Moab and the children of Ammon, and with them other beside the Ammonites, came against Jehoshaphat to battle. Then there came some that told Jehoshaphat, saying, there cometh a great multitude against thee from beyond the sea on this side Syria. And behold, they be in Hazazan Tamar, which is in Gadang. And Jehoshaphat, notice, did what we often do, feared. And set himself to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. As we continue this thought of what to do when, I want us to look tonight at this particular thought. What to do when you need a miracle? What do you do when you need a miracle? I think there's a number of passages we could look at, but let's look at this one here tonight, 2 Chronicles 20. And looking at this man, Jehoshaphat, and the people of God. You need a miracle tonight? I do. And so this is for me, and you can listen then. What to do when you need a miracle. Thank you. Please be seated. There are many times in the life of a church when we need to see a miracle. This church has seen miracles over the 60 plus years of its existence. We're at a certain point in the church sees God intervene in works and it's undeniable we know that God did this and apart from his intervention humanly it's not possible and I'm sure in your own life you can chronicle some of these things and see how the Lord worked mightily in your situation and proved himself strong and did what was humanly impossible. In this particular passage the background we find Jehoshaphat he's the king of Israel he found himself in need of a miracle. There were three enemy kings we just read about who made an alliance for the purpose of destroying Jehoshaphat, destroying Israel, overcoming the nation. And any of these kings, any of these armies in and of themselves would have been stronger than what Jehoshaphat could have handled. But it just wasn't one. It was three in alliance. Only a miracle would do for Jehoshaphat. And we can see here, I believe, some things on what we too can do when we need a miracle. We read there in verse 1, again, these nations combined together. Maybe you're facing, maybe you have faced, no doubt we, were, we are going to face certain trials because James tells us it's going to happen. Count it all joy when, not if, when you fall into divers, temptations or trials or tests. And when you face an impossible enemy, you may feel overwhelmed by the situation you're facing. It could be your health. It could be your family. It could be a financial matter. You just feel overwhelmed. You might feel hopeless. You might feel in despair. The natural, initial reaction to that is what? Fear. That was Jehoshaphat. He, he feared. Whether he showed it, displayed it, said it, 
And many times we would not even own the fact that there's fear because we know we should not, but sometimes it just, it's there and, it, and we have to face it and conquer it before it gets out of hand. But Joshua or Jehoshaphat, that's exactly what he felt. In fact, in verse number three, it says he feared. And then the Bible says he didn't stop with being fearful, but he set himself to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. Why? Because Jehoshaphat needed a miracle. Listen, I don't want a life, a Christian life. I don't want a ministry without miracles. And the fact that we've got a, a facet of Christianity. I mean, there's a lot of Christian schools and Bible colleges and a lot of churches that cater to a life of of um, just fitting in, being comfortable. I'll tell you, that kind of life, you're not going to see miracles. So this is not for those who don't want to rock the boat. Now, God's all about rocking our boat because He's all about coming to us on the sea to do a miracle. But when we're wanting to stay in our comfort zone, let me go from the playpen all the way to parenting in my comfort zone. You're not going to see miracles, so this isn't going to appeal. But I'm talking about those who are striving to serve the Lord and you're trying to do what God wants you to do and you experience overwhelming trial or crisis and you need a miracle. That's a good place to be. Well, what do you do? Number one. Jehoshaphat feared, verse 3, set himself to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. We'll have these five on the, on the screen. I'll say some things that won't be on the screen, but I'll give you these five thoughts tonight. Number one, get in tune with God. You want to see a miracle? Get in tune with God. I don't know why I use that, because really what I want to say is get right with God. Just get right with Him. You're not going to get the miracle from God apart from God. Get in tune with God. So Jehoshaphat proclaimed a fast. Why? Because he knew he needed to get in tune with God. See, a fast is the denial of physical food in order that you might focus on something else. In other words, when you fast, you go without food. Your energy is directed away from your stomach to your brain. You fast long enough by denying the stomach food, you're soon going to begin to focus on that greatest concern that you have in your life. And somebody says, but I'm, I already cannot stop thinking about my problem or my situation or these alliances of kings coming against me. Why would I want to fast in order to focus more on that? Well, the fasting is in order to get the focus on needing to divorce ourselves from the situation to put our attention on God in the situation. See, God wants us to face our trial, but focus on Him. And sometimes that fasting is in order to get the focus on God. Face the crisis, Jehoshaphat. Face the crisis, but don't lose your focus. Don't you get your focus on you and your enemy. Get your focus on God and the problem. Fasting was a biblical practice. Jesus also practiced fasting. You want to be like Jesus? Fast. Remember he was in the wilderness 40 days, 40 nights without food. And the Bible teaches that Jesus was one who fasted. He never condemned people who fasted for the right reason. He did condemn those who fasted for show of their piety religion. And so men would praise them or think that they're spiritual. But he's not condemning fasting. He's condemning their arrogance and their pride. Fasting is a biblical practice. It is still a practice that ought to be practiced. It, it can change our life, not the fasting itself, but what fasting does, and it is to focus our attention on God. Let me ask you a question. When you're faced with an impossible situation, are you motivated or are you intimidated? See, I'm sure that the king's first reaction 
here was fear. You say, why do you think that? Well, because it says it. He was fearful. He was afraid. He was intimidated. So, recognizing that, he proclaims a fast. Not only did he seek to be in tune with God, but the Bible goes on and tells us that the whole nation, even the little children under his leadership, got in on that. They were a part of the fast. The whole nation together is a core in unity. Why? So that they could get in tune with God. Well, no amens there. That's right, Brother Autry, you don't get amens. We're just going to keep firing in the hole. Something's got to come out. We, we want the blessings of God, but we want, don't want to get in tune with the blesser. You want a miracle? You better get in tune with the miracle worker. Number two tonight. Once you get in tune with God, number two, commit your need to God in prayer. Commit your need to God in prayer. You can fast without praying. But it's a good idea to fast and commit your need to God in prayer. Verse number five, And Jehoshaphat stood in the congregation of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord. You see this, verse five? Before the new court and said, here's Jehoshaphat talking to God, O Lord God of our fathers, Art not thou God in heaven, and rulest not thou over all the kingdoms of the heathen? And in thy hand is there not power and might, so that none is able to withstand thee? Look at verse number 7. Art not thou our God, who didst drive out the inhabitants of this land before thy people, Israel, and gavest it to the seed of Abraham, thy friend forever, and they dwelt therein and have built thee a sanctuary therein for thy name. Say, if when evil cometh upon us as the sword judgment or pestilence or famine, we stand before this house and in thy presence, for thy name is in this house, and cry unto thee in our affliction, then thou wilt hear and help. And now behold the children of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom thou wouldest not let Israel invade when they came out of the land of Egypt, but they turned from them and destroyed them not. Behold, I say how they reward us to come to cast us out of thy possession, which thou hast given us to inherit, O our God, wilt thou not judge them? For we have no might against this great company that cometh against us, neither know we what to do, but our eyes are upon thee. You know what he's doing? He's praying this whole time. And he's committing his need to God in prayer. And I believe this is a great model prayer for those of us who need a miracle in our life. And here he just told us in verses 5, 6, and 7 that the land is about to be destroyed. They're about to lose the land. And so he reminds God of his promises. You ever remind God of his promises? You know, because God forgets from time to time what he said. No. No, it's not about... Reminding God because he forgot, it's about displaying, God, we're committing this to you. And you said it's okay. In fact, you welcomed us to do so. God, you promised this land to Abraham. We're the descendants of Abraham. We're the recipients of his promise. That's what he's saying. So verse 8, he talks about the sanctuary that was built. Verse 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, and, and then in verse 13, notice this one. I didn't read this. I uh, should, should have went to verse 13. And all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives, and their children. Now, <clears throat> there are several things here I want to mention. Jehoshaphat, he goes to the temple of God. Remember this temple? It was dedicated by who? Do you remember who, where the dedication came from, who dedicated the temple? Solomon. You remember when the Bible tells us that when Solomon dedicated the temple, God spoke to him and he said, now Solomon, the day's going to come when the people have turned from me, when the people are going to experience certain things. And that's what they're rehearsing in verse number nine. If when evil cometh upon us, 
as the sword, judgment or pestilence or famine, we stand before this house and in thy presence. So he's saying, we, we stand here for this is what was, was promised is going to happen. These, these tragedies, one was judgment. The judgment of God is going to cause these tragedies. Another is pestilence in verse number nine. When the land is de devastated by insects, and the manifestation of the crops, and there's going to be times when famine, famine comes into the land. That's the third one. I tell you, this sounds a lot like Second Chronicles seven fourteen. If my people, which are called by my name, would humble themselves, pray, seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, God says, then will I hear from heaven, will heal their land, forgive their sin, heal their land. And this is what he's referring to because land was significant in the Old Testament economy of God's people, whereas life is the key in New Testament Christianity. So he's, he's praying this prayer of repentance. He's praying this prayer of confession. I want you to just note a couple things about this prayer. One, this prayer was deliberate. He was purposeful in his pursuit of God. Here's what I don't read in this prayer. He didn't go out there tried to fight the enemy, tried to negotiate his way out, then come back to God and say, well, God, since we couldn't do it, we believe you can. No. You know, a lot of people come to the point in their life where they try this and they try that and they think, well, why don't we just try God? And it's unfortunate that a lot of times I don't get a chance to help somebody until they've tried everything else that has spoiled their life and has robbed them of opportunity. Then they say, well, let's, let's give God a chance. They've not prayed about it. And they've not committed it to God. And, and, and well, I guess the only thing left to do is pray. No. If prayer is what we ought to do, then prayer should be what we start to do. If it's a good thing that we pray, then it's a better thing that we start with prayer. If we're going to practice prayer, we ought to start out with prayer. It ought to be a faith-building prayer. It's a faith-building prayer that Jehoshaphat prays. In this wonderful example of a prayer, we read some things in here when you need a miracle because this is a faith-building prayer. Well, just notice it again, verse 6. He said, O Lord God of our fathers, art not thou God in heaven and rulest not thou over all the kingdoms of the heathen and in thine hand is there not power and might so that none is able to withstand thee? Art not thou our God who didst drive out the inhabitants of this land before thy people Israel and gavest it to the seed of Abraham, thy friend forever? You know what he's doing in this faith-building prayer? Verse number seven. He reminds himself of who God is. He has a personal relationship with God and he reminds God and he reminds himself at the same time in this prayer of who God is. Notice in verse seven, um, God, you're a creator. God is the creator but God is also Savior, Deliverer. God is also my Redeemer. He has a personal relationship with God. And he says, God of our fathers, you are God in heaven. So he reminds himself of who God is. Another thing that he does in this faith-building prayer is he reminds himself of what God has done. That's why testimonies are significant. He said, God... You're the God that rulest, not thou over, uh, rulest thou over all the kingdoms of the heathen. He recognizes, recognizes that God is sovereign and he reminds God, you're the God who drove out the enemies of our land. You're the God who gave us this land. Our God is the one who brought us from darkness into light, from death into life. Our God is the one who gave us life. 
In other words, he's reminding himself of the person of God. He's reminding himself of the past performance of God. And he's reminding himself of the ability of God, what he can do and needs to be done when you need a miracle. Young person, do you need a miracle? I don't know if I need a miracle. Well, what are you complaining about then? Why do you gripe and complain? Why do you get bitter and put your lip out? You need a miracle. Get in tune with God. Commit your circumstance to God in prayer. So he reminds himself. So why don't you remind yourself of who God is? He's the God of heaven. He's the God who has done all things. He's the God who's created everything. Question. Is there anything too hard for God? Some of you haven't figured it out yet. Let me ask again, see if you have gotten the answer yet. Is there anything too hard for God? No. Is there anything that God cannot do? So why don't we commit the situation to God in a faith-building prayer? He reminds himself that the situation, it's really too big for him, but it's not too big for God. He feared Jehoshaphat, that is. God did it. I promise you there's no situation that is impossible for God. You say, well, how can you say that? Because God promises it. Jesus said, with God, all things are possible, especially to those who believe. And so this is a faith-building prayer. Remind yourself of what God has done for you in the past. Has God done any good things for you in the past? Well, you think he can do them again in the present? Remind yourself of those times when you prayed and God answered your prayer. See, when you get in tune with God, you get in touch with God, you get right with God, then commit the need to God in prayer. And remember how God once moved in your life? Well, remember he can do it again today. All of us can think of those times, a time of tragedy, a trial, sorrow, heartache, Times of great need when God was there and God brought us through it. So here's another thought. Not only in this faith-building prayer should we remind ourselves of what God has done, but also remind yourself of who God is. But here's here's another thought under this faith-building prayer. Ask God to do it again. Ask him to do it again. Do it again, Lord. Do it again. By the way, I think that's a great idea for a sermon. Do it again, Lord. God, you delivered your people through the Red Sea. That's what Jehoshaphat is saying. Do it again, Lord. God, you sent the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. 3,000 souls were saved. Do it again, Lord. Ask God to do it again. So he said, God, are you not and did you not and will you not do it again? Verse 12, he says, oh God, will you not judge them? He said, how about a repeat performance of the miracles that you've performed in the nation in the past and, and for the leaders in the, in the, your leaders in the past, do it again. So you need a miracle. Commit the need to God in prayer. Now, I'm not talking about the kind of praying like the um, husband prayed whose first wife passed away and he married again and his second wife passed away and then he prayed, God, do it again. And so I'm not talking about that kind of praying. Number three. When you need a miracle, number three, Admit your need for help. In verse number 12, he says, O our God, wilt thou not judge them? For we have no might against this great company that cometh against us, neither know we what to do. Hey, it's not just okay to admit that you can't do it. No, that's Bible. Jesus said, To his disciples, without me, you can do nothing. Oh, you can build a program. You can run a business. You can can bring order to a situation. You can 
you can uh, lead a church, you can do anything physically with your energy you want to do, but Jesus is saying you're not going to do it with life, miraculous power. You can't manufacture life. And so Jesus is saying you can't do it without me. Confess your inadequacy in the midst of whatever your need is. Just be honest with God. I used, to, I used to feel ashamed to tell God, I don't think I can do this. But then I got to a point point, realized that's the key to a lot of it. Because God is waiting to step into Jehoshaphat's life. But if Jehoshaphat is going to act in fear, or if Jehoshaphat's going to act in self-reliance, God's going to stand by. Jehoshaphat, however, recognizes we can't handle one of these armies, much less three of these. We are no match. We have no resource. We can do nothing. We don't even know what to do. And God says, that's the place I want to be. You know why? Because he came to seek and to save those who are lost. He came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And when you think you've got it together, you won't think you need God. And the truth is, we are in need. It's not difficult to get a person saved. The challenge is to get them to see they're lost and in need of salvation. It's not difficult to see revival come to a life, a heart, a person, or a family, or a church. The challenge is, is for us to agree with the Bible and admit we need God. There's a little poem that says, The world had a hopeful beginning, but man spoiled it by all the sinning. We trust the story will end to God's glory, but right now it looks like Satan is winning. And that's the way it sometimes looks. People may look at it and say, well, the devil's winning. We're losing. One day we get to heaven, it'll all get settled. But the good news is we don't have to wait to get to heaven before it gets settled. Now, ultimately, God will eliminate the fight and the battle altogether. But the fight is a good fight of faith. And we ought to be able to enjoy seeing God step in and do the miracles. So say, God, I cannot do this. Only you can. By the way, God never said you could. By the way, he always said he would. I told someone the other day, someone said, I'm at the end of my rope. I've come to the end of myself. I said, good. That's where you find the miracle working God. Somebody else said, I've hit rock bottom. I said, great, that's where you'll discover the solid rock. See, you can go as low as you, you can possibly go, and you're going to find that God is there. Yes. You, you find that he's the foundation that will not be shaken. He is a solid rock. He never changes. All other ground is sinking sand. Put your eyes on him. Don't take your eyes off of him. You're always in need. Even when you don't feel like you're in need, Amen. you're still in need. Corey Ten Boom said, if you look at the world, you're going to be distressed. You look within, you'll get depressed. But you look at Christ, you'll be at rest. So put your eyes on God. Face the situation in crisis you're going through. But focus on God because with Him, there is no limitation. You know, we focus on whatever we focus on tends to be what our reality seems to be. If we continue to focus on the circumstances, then we tend to be defeated. The nation of Israel focused on Goliath, and they were defeated. David comes along, he focuses on God, and they see victory in a moment. Whatever you tend to focus on tends to become your reality. If you focus on the impossibility, then you're going to think of things that are impossible. When you're, you're drawn to whatever you focus on. If you focus on your fears rather than on where your faith is resting, you're going to continue to be fearful and afraid. But you have to remember, greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Focus on the one who's greater. So when you need a miracle, after you've tuned in to God, after you've committed to him in prayer, after you've admitted to God that if he does not act, you're lost, you're done, it's all over. There's nothing that you can do. Then number four, you still with me? Amen. Number four, look at verse 17. Ye shall not need to what? 
fight in, what's the next word? This battle. Now notice what he says. Set yourselves, stand ye still, and see the salvation of the Lord with you. Number four. Relax in faith. Relax in faith. And that's exactly what King Jehoshaphat did. He just relaxed in faith and said, God, you're going to have to take care of it. And God speaks to him, gives him the answer. And it's a wonderful answer. Notice what we just read. Jehoshaphat, the battle's not yours, it's the Lord's. Remember again, the nation of Israel paralyzed at Goliath and all the surrounding circumstances of his victory over them. David comes in and he charges against Goliath. Remember what he said? The battle's the Lord's. There was no anxiety there. Saw God do it with the lion and the bear. God will do it with this uncircumcised Philistine. The battle's not yours, it's the Lord's. I want to say that that's just as true today as it was for Jehoshaphat. Are you a child of God? Then your battle's the Lord's. God gave him the battle plan. The first thing about this battle plan, let's relax. The worst possible news came to Jehoshaphat. And God says, relax. Well, why do you relax? Because the battle's not yours. Why are you getting anxious about a battle that's not yours? Well, it's my health. No, it's not. You belong to God. Just be steward of the faithfulness and the grace of God to the temple that he's given to you. The battle's not yours, it's God's. You have committed it to God. And listen, if you really are honest, you have to admit, you can't do anything about it. You can't do anything but struggle. Why would you struggle when you can relax? Can't wait to get off from work so I can go home, put my feet up and struggle. No, we want to relax. God says relax. He wants you just to give it to him. Verse 17, he's saying the battle's not yours. You don't need to fight in this battle. What a tremendous thought. Listen, the reason you can relax is if the battle is God's and there's no need for you to fight, you can relax because... God's never lost a battle. He's never lost a fight. He's never been conquered. He's never had to say uncle. He's never thrown in the towel. Satan has tried to conquer him. Satan tried to conquer him from the beginning in the Garden of Eden. Satan tried to destroy the seed of the woman, the Lord Jesus Christ, and tried to keep him from being born. Satan tried to destroy him in Bethlehem after he was born. Satan tried to destroy him out in the wilderness when he tempted the Lord Jesus, that is the devil did. He tried to destroy him when he went back to his hometown of Nazareth. They wanted to throw him over a cliff, but Jesus got away. Satan has tried to destroy Jesus all throughout his ministry, tried to destroy him in the Garden of Gethsemane, tried to destroy him on the cross. They put him in a tomb and Satan said, I'm going to destroy him. I'm going to have this tomb sealed and guarded, but Satan could never destroy the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord has never lost a battle. He's never lost a battle. He's never let one of his children down. Jesus Christ is the great conqueror. Therefore, he is the one who will fight for you. He is the one you can commit it to. He's the one. And that's the reason you can relax. In faith and in trust for him to work it out. You say, well, what if it's two of his children who have a crisis? Sounds like you need a miracle. And he can perform that miracle as well. So if he says to relax, the battle's not yours, it's the Lord's. Don't give in to discouragement. Don't give in to discouragement. Don't give in to fear. You're not relaxed when you're discouraged. You're not relaxed when you're fearful. You're not relaxed when you're chewing your cuticles. They're not there for you to chew on, by the way. Neither are your nails. Don't, don't, don't. 
Parents, help your kids. I don't care if they're 20. Tell them to stop biting their fingernails. It's a scientific, scientific proven fact. There's poop under your nails. Stop chewing them. No, you're not paying attention anyway. I'm just going to... The Lord has never lost a battle. Don't get discouraged. Some of you are trying to figure out that nail thing. Don't, don't think about it. Just stop it. Just, just stop. Stop biting your nails. Thank you, Brother Rick. I'm glad you're in agreement because you wouldn't be. We have no amens on that one. Look again what he says for them. Set yourselves, stand ye still, see the salvation of the Lord with you. And notice in verse number 17, he goes on, O Judah and Jerusalem, fear not, nor be dismayed. In other words, don't get discouraged, don't be fearful. Tomorrow, go out against them. Face your crisis, for the Lord will be with you. Face it and relax in faith. Stand firm in your confidence. How? Well, understand what your faith is based on. Your faith is not based upon your feelings. I know we're in the South and we're so feely, touchy. That's why people are so easily offended. Why? Because they live by feelings and not by faith in God. Our faith is not based on feelings. If so, you're going to be disappointed. Anyone ever, has anyone had the flu this past year? Anyone have the flu, have a fever? You didn't feel good. But guess what? Even when you didn't feel good, you know that God was God who still did not change. That's right, amen. So if you go off of your feelings, it's going to throw you. Yeah. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So stand firm because our faith is in God who never changes, not in our feelings. Why is that a good thing? Because God has never had a bad day. Amen. God has never even woke up. God has never had to wipe the sleep out of his eyes. God doesn't wake up and God is never in a lousy mood. Aren't you thankful we have a God who's never moody? Just because you married moody doesn't mean that, you, that everything is, is, is tainted with that and that God is that way too. God's not moody. He's never been moody. God never changes. God is love. He doesn't change in that. He doesn't change in his love. He doesn't change in his power. He doesn't change in his purposes. He doesn't change in his plan. He doesn't change in his presence. He's always with you no matter what you do. He's always with you no matter how you feel. You may say this morning, well, I just feel like I'm so far away from God. That might be your perspective. But God is the same God as when you felt like you were close to God. He's the same God in character. He's the same faithful God that we sang about at the beginning of the service. So you know God is not like some inconsistent parent who becomes angry and changes his mind and says, well, I promised you this, but I'm not going to do this. Because you blew it here, I'm not going to do this. No, no, God is, is consistent. He's always consistent in keeping with his word, his character. And when everything seems to contradict the word of God, when everything seems to conflict with God's word, you can be assured of this. God's word has not changed. Think about a lady who got saved a number of years ago in a revival meeting with her son. And, and um, the person who worked with her, the personal worker, showed her 1 John chapter 1, He that hath the Son hath life. And that her assurance of her salvation comes from the promise that God says, If you have the Son, you have life. And you get the Son by faith when you call upon Him in faith. Well, some time went by and weeks turned into months and, and she begins to, uh, and this is what happens when we don't follow the one who saved us and, and she didn't get into church and stay in church and, and she began to slip and began to struggle and began to become bombarded with life around her. And she began to question whether or not she was saved and her son reminded her, he that hath the son hath life. And she says, well, I must not be saved. It must not have been real. I must not have the son. Because look at what's happening. Son, I guess it was not real. Son, I guess it was just some emotion. I guess I made some kind of a mistake. 
And the little boy went to his room and he got his Bible and he came back. He said, no, mom, you are saved because 1 John 5 and verse 12, it's still in the book. See, it matters not how you feel. God's promise doesn't change. God's promises don't change. The promises of God are still in the Bible. You can check them out. You can stand firm on the promise of God. God's promises are like checks that he's writing and he himself signs them. And you can cash in his promise over and over and over and over and they'll never bounce. You ever get a topical Bible, you get a concordance or a dictionary that lists all the promises of God? There was a book um, by Herbert Lockyer, and one of them was on all the promises of God. I don't know if he had all of them in there, but it's a book on all the promises of God. I'm telling you, if you were to get a book like that or or do a, a, a search in a concordance or Bible program, it would be a great devotion for us, for me, for all of us to be able to, to take at least one of these promises every day. You know, it would take a long, long time, several years, even a lifetime to exhaust the promises of Almighty God that are found in the Bible. And here's the wonderful thing about them. It's not that there's just so many of them. It's that there are so many of them and none of them have ever failed. Amen. None of them. Jack Hudson, who founded um, the... Um, uh, church in Charlotte, North Carolina, and um, years ago, he, he, I remember listening to him as, as I was a little boy in Northside Baptist Church, and, and he, he said in, in his Bible reading, he would write the letters STP in certain places. And he said there were the verses where he would come across a promise. And he said, I would write letters STP, which stood for Scriptures, Tried and proven. Aren't you thankful that you have a God who cannot lie? A God who cannot fail you? So you can relax in your faith in a God that is faithful and never fails. The battle's not yours. If if it was yours, you'd be in a heap of trouble. Because we're already in a mess. But the battle's the Lord's. He's never lost. He's going to be victorious. Can I give you one more? I'm going to anyway. Number five. Notice verse 21. When he had consulted with the people, he appointed singers unto the Lord and that should praise the beauty of holiness as they went out before the army and to say, praise the Lord for his mercy endureth forever. And when they began to Fight. No. And when they began to sing and to praise, the Lord set ambushments against the children of Ammon, Moab, Mount Seir, which were come against Judah, and they were smitten. Number five, when you need a miracle, thank God in advance for what he's about to do. Thank God. In verse 21, 22, the battle strategy's been made. God told him what to do, and Jehoshaphat, he works it out. You know what he did? He put the Canaan Baptist choir out in front, and he put the fighters behind him. Why? Because he already told him the battle's not theirs. God's going to do the fight. But he did give them a responsibility. The army was to stay behind the singers, and the singers were to praise the Lord. Verse 21 tells us what he, what he just told us. There's a great principle. It's a strange battle plan, but it's a great principle. Defeating an army with a choir. One of the principles that you can find here and throughout the Bible is that praising Christians are powerful Christians. Maybe we're not as powerful because we're not praising. Oh no, we're good at praising after the victory is won. But here they praise before. The victory is won. In other words, they were recognizing the supernatural before it was manifested. All they did was send the choir out to praise the Lord. And these three enemy armies were smitten. They turned against one another. Notice verse 23. For the children of Ammon and Moab stood up against the inhabitants of Mount Seir. They were all in alliance. They were on the same team. And they 
uh, turned against each other utterly to slay and to destroy them. And when they had made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, everyone helped to destroy another. I mean, I, I've been in some churches where the choirs cause some confusion. Especially when the song leader said, we're singing this song, but we're on this page number and they didn't go together. <laughs> it's never happened with the choir. It just... It's an overwhelming victory. No prisoners of war. They were all destroyed. Not only is the enemy defeated without firing a shot, but they go in and it takes three days for the people of God just to bring out the abundance, the, the loot. That reminds me of Romans chapter 8 where the Bible tells us we are more than conquerors. We are super conquerors. There's not even a word in the English language to translate that in Romans 8, 31 through 32. It gives us so many words to describe what we are in Christ because we are truly super conquerors. In Jesus Christ, we're more than conquerors. God did more for them than they expected. But the key, the key to it, the key to it is that they praise the Lord in advance. They were thanking God in advance. Verse 21, you see, when they began to praise the Lord in the beauty of His holiness, they were acknowledging that God was going to win for them the victory. They're praising Him in advance for what He's going to do. Anybody can give God credit and thanks after the victory, but all through the Bible, God's people, we see great power displayed when they are expressing gratitude and confidence and thankfulness before the victory ever comes. Why? Because that kind of a confession, it results in possession because it's a display of confidence in God. And God is always moved. Well, Hebrews 11, it pleases God. It pleases Him to put confidence in Him. It happened at Jericho, did it not? God told them to march around the wall every day for six days, one time. Then on the seventh day, march around seven times, blow the trumpet, shout! And God will give us the victory. They shouted before the victory. Again, it makes no sense. They're no match for the walled city of Jericho. But the walled city of Jericho is no match for God. Your crisis is no match for God. One reason we don't see more victories is that we don't have more praise. Billy Sunday said we need to take some of the grunts out of our prayers and replace them with hallelujahs. We need to praise the Lord for the beauty of His holiness before the victory comes because praise releases the power of God. When the choir went out and began to praise the Lord, the power of God was released. That's why it's important, choir. It is significant, not just that we're singing the right words, but that your heart is in tune to the one you're singing about. Sometimes I, I've, I've said, I don't know if it's going out, but I've said to, to, um, um, to several, we need to send a clip of the YouTube, the service out, before Brother Cherry trims off the singing and puts it on, on the YouTube so that people can look at their faces when they're singing so that they can look at their faces when they're not singing while sitting here. Because it doesn't look a lot of times like we really believe in the one that we're here about. It looks like we're kind of um, bored. Even when we're giving an announcement, welcoming people. And, 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 and that's, a, that's a special time even for me because we're trying to, to let people know, again, why we're here. I know what happens in a lot of homes on a Sunday morning and the cars getting here. And I want people to recognize while, while they got here by whatever means, with whatever motivation and in whatever manner, ultimately they're here because God wants to meet with them. And so I will sometimes watch this service. I'm thinking, what, 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 are they, what are they watching? I'm thinking, was there something flying around that I missed? And what, what, are, what are they thinking about? Their grocery list? And I've asked Brother Cherry, is there a way we can dark, I mean, just darken the place until it's time for them to sing? Because at least then, when it comes time to sing, maybe they'll act like, <clears throat> I, I want to be here. 
He said, no, we can't darken it that much. Well, then maybe we can put a curtain in here. Just drop the curtain. I'm telling you, this is not the Atlanta Symphony. And, 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 and no, I'm not comparing us to professionals, but I'm comparing us to a hope that endureth forever. That we have a God, that there's no God like our God. There's no rock like our rock. So shouldn't it mean something to us, even in the simple, in the mundane, even in the, the still times, shouldn't there be some kind of hope and anticipation and a spirit of praise. That's where the dynamic comes in worship. And here's the other thing about this is the whole congregation of Israel was involved. The whole congregation of Israel was involved in this miracle in the time of Jehoshaphat. When the congregation comes together and there's true praise of God, there's something dynamic about that. It's not by accident that sinners are saved in those kinds of atmospheres, in that kind of a climate. It's not by accident that people are moved in their heart. It's not by accident that in certain situations, in a certain atmosphere, there's a freedom of the Spirit of God to work in the lives of the people. It happens a lot of times in the arena of praise. Oh, not the praise that the, that the trendy churches talk about. No, it's praise that is dictated by Jesus' command of in spirit and in truth. Praise that has power. Praise that has power because praise resists the devil. Praise releases the power of God. Praise also is a witness to the world of what God can do. That's why, that's why, that's why to me we have in the Bible the most, most uh, uh, visible, the most prevalent, the most popular posture in all the Bible when you find in the arena of worship and praise is kneeling. And I contend that's why many still will not kneel. I don't need to do this. I don't need to do that. I don't need to do this. I'll wear a mask if I want to wear a mask. I won't wear a mask if I won't wear a mask. I'm not going to kneel. I'll kneel if I want to kneel. I won't kneel if I don't want to kneel. I'll stand if I want to sing. I'm not going to sing unless I want to sing. If I don't want to sing, I'm not going to sing. I'm going to tell you your problem is you don't know God. You don't know God. You might be saved as a child of God, but you don't know him. You don't know him in the power of his glory. You, you, hey, don't pray yet. It's not time to pray. I'll tell you when it's time to pray. We're not there yet. We're almost, but we're not there yet. Wake up. Listen, and, and by the way, now's not the time to pray. We'll pray in just a moment. Hang on. You don't know him. If you knew him, as Paul said, you should know him, you would bow the knee now. And not just the one knee, but the other knee. Both bad knees. You say, I've got to get them replaced. Kneel faster, quicker. You'll get them replaced sooner. You say, if I kneel, I can't get up. Then stay there. You need to know him. Amen. Can we stand together, please? Let's do so.